Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson. Today is April 20th, 2021. This episode is a recording of a webinar we held on Friday, April 16th. Rachel Washburn is our moderator, and she does a great job of introducing our contributors and framing the topic. I'll leave it to her. Well, thank you again, everyone, for joining us today. Welcome to Academy Security's latest geopolitical webinar. Today, we want to shed some light on a topic that we feel is being undercovered and perhaps underestimated. For years, tensions between the U.S. and Russia have been rising, and we have seen increased boldness in Putin's activity abroad and close to home. Today, we will discuss the recent large military troop movement to the border of Ukraine and the possible implications Putin's strategy may have for NATO, China, and Europe. Today's webinar is a great example of how Academy strives to constantly add value beyond our designation as a minority and veteran-owned firm. At the intersection of authenticity and capability for our team is our geopolitical intelligence group. Advisory board members comprised of 14 retired admirals and generals joining us on today's call. We have General Spider Marks, head of geopolitical strategy and the former commanding general of the U.S. Army Intelligence Center, and General Mastin Robinson, who commanded the Marine Corps Special Forces uh, Special Operations Command and served as the military assistant to Secretary of Defense William S. Cohen. An important element of our geopolitical offering is our is a valuable market overlay provided by Peter Chur, our head of macro strategy. With over 25 years of industry experience, Peter contextualizes the input from our team of retired admirals and generals, helping investors and corporations alike understand the implications of national security and policy challenges. But at any time you have a question from our team, please type them into the Q&A portion at the bottom of the screen. Uh, and without further delay, General Marks would love to pose the first question and opportunity to you. Uh, we are living in an incredibly volatile time with just unbelievable hardship and so many issues to pay attention to, um, which is one of the reasons Peter thought it would be a good idea to us to hop on the phone today to discuss this particular one, one that isn't getting a ton of attention, but is a you know, primed for action uh, based on the geopolitical conditions of the time. So we'd love to you to share with our audience um, why you think it's important, maybe a little bit of the history and why we're here. Thanks, Rachel. And thanks everyone for joining us today. I mean, let, let's look at it. We've got right now over 100,000 Russian soldiers on the border um, with Ukraine, specifically the Eastern portion of Ukraine called the Donbass. Remember in 2014, Russia very elegantly and very quickly took over the Crimea, primarily because Putin at the time said he wanted to, ru- to rescue those Russian-speaking citizens that were being held captive, if you will, by Ukraine. That's what we see now. Um, and, and we should not be surprised by this adventurism that Putin is now engaged in. Now, the context of all of this certainly is a new administration, recovery from a pandemic, concerns about a resurgence of a pandemic, tons of problems in Europe in terms of getting their arms around the pandemic. So everybody is looking in a bunch of different directions and it's an ideal time for Putin to be aggressive like he is. This is recidivist, both czarist and Soviet type of behavior, which is what Putin is masterful at doing. So my view right now is we see Putin being exercising a degree of brinksmanship that again should not surprise us. My view is that there has been enough support, unequivocal support, at least vocally from this administration to include the president, the secretary of state, Blinken, the secretary of defense, uh, Lloyd Austin, 
to include the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, both to their counterparts in Ukraine, but also the chairman has also reached, the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff has also reached out to his counterpart in Moscow and said, be very careful. We're paying attention. We also have support from individual NATO members. So what we see now should give us great pause, but my view of this is this, the fact that Putin is using brinksmanship and is being aggressive like he is right now has a long-term effect if he doesn't pull the trigger to invade, to further push. He gets great benefit from this right now while he's dealing with some domestic issues as well. So let me just take a step back and, and uh, certainly defer to my uh, partners and colleagues here. Well, Spider, I couldn't agree more with what you said. I think it's also further complicated by um, the U.S. can be very easily misunderstood because all of us tend to, to interpret international uh, scenarios through our own lenses. And Russia's lens and most of that part of the world would look at what we're going through in the United States today with the change of presidency, lots of... Uh, of um, difference of opinions politically, domestically, um, seemingly a hamstrung uh, Congress, seemingly even talk about changing the Supreme Court, um, seeming crisis on the southern border. It, it is exacerbated everything you just said by the fact that um, it would not surprise me that Putin and his advisors see us in a very weak position, even though we have individuals reaching out, they would have a hard time seeing that the United States is really as unified as we know we are and as capable as we know we are to respond. So it was heartening to me that there were the number of NATO countries that, that, that were willing to at least put their name in the hat and be part of the voice to say, stop, take a breath, pause. And I don't think there's any doubt that President Biden um, understands having gone through as the vice president, what happened with Crimea in 2014, that the sooner and the more decisively he engages, the better, the, the more options he has to, uh, in his toolkit to be able to use. And I think he's done that at this point and leveraged his entire staff, like you were saying. And I think that is a, a, a strong response. It's the, the real question is, but what if this bluff is called, you know, and, and that, of course, is, is always the, that, that's always the biggest challenge. The easy part is the first, the first message you articulate. It's backing that message up with something credible enough to cause the other side to blink that really is, is where the rubber meets the road. You know, Mastin, if I can just jump in for a quick second, because I think this is the segue to Peter, Peter is how do we get out of a defensive responsive mode and try to shape to take the initiative? And, and that is to your point about the options that are available to us. And I, and I think Peter has got a, got a real bead on how we might be able to maneuver and to assume some momentum so that we can take the initiative and not be as responsive here. Yeah, I think I'll go back briefly to when we took out Soleimani. I believe at the time there was a lot of angst amongst certainly the media and 
what that could do, what sort of retaliation. I think the GIG did a great job of contextualizing it and pointing out that Soleimani was responsible for a lot of deaths and on an ongoing basis would be responsible for a lot of deaths and taking them out, maybe increase the risk of retaliation. But overall, from a military standpoint, it would be a wise decision to take them out. And I think in hindsight, it's been very good, right? We didn't let someone cross the line. People understood very clearly where that line was. We took out a very, very capable leader. And whether it's because of his leadership's gone or there's more fear, we've seen less activity, I think, out of the Middle East. So I think it, it's very important that, you know, if we are going to draw lines in the sand, that we are willing to stick to those lines. Because I think not only is Russia prodding, and they're probably not doing this in conjunction, but clearly China is watching as China continues to flex their muscle in and around Taiwan and Iran. The Biden administration might be more willing to use carrots than sticks. So the notion of sanctions might be, and, and Putin is probably looking at this with some really strong you know, calculations behind it saying, you know, I might get something out of this. And oh, by the way, I can, I can put the spotlight on me for internal political reasons. You know, he's got some challenges at home, parliamentary elections coming up in September. Um, but he has rewritten the constitution. He's going to be around till 2036. I mean, this is like weekend at Bernie's, right? He, he might be a dead man who's going to still be around and he's, they're going to be carting him out for the longest time. Um, but I could see where he might be thinking. I might get some real benefit out of this. Well, there's any doubt he gets benefit from his, from his, his nation anytime that he appears to be a strong man. Uh, if there's one thing that Russia has suffered from um, since the fall of the Soviet Union is they hate being looked at as a second tier, second class uh, player instead of as somebody that, that no kidding should be considered as one of the dominant powers in the world. So anytime he, he puts his foot out there, puts his leads with his face, with his nose, um, he, he's going to get added respect with benefits him the key is can he find a way can, can we find a way for him to be able to off-ramp without losing the the benefit of that reputational advantage with his people as we're now a strong country again and i think that'll be what biden and his and his cabinet will be looking for is how do we make this thing off-ramp without crushing putin without making Putin look like he's a, a dog with his tail between his legs, which just makes him back into a corner and enhances the ability, the probability that, that he'll react uh, less than rational. I'm glad yeah, that General Sin, because we actually had a question from the audience to that exact point. Does Putin need to invade to get the benefit of um, being perceived as a strong man internally? Uh, that being said, uh, given the era of strategic competition that we find ourselves in, the renewed cooperation between China and Russia, how does Putin view um, the benefit of that uh, relationship potentially of convenience during this time? You know, my, my, my thought just very briefly is that the relationship between Russia and China is a mile wide and an inch deep. I, I think they get more perception uh, than they do actual bang for the buck. Um, China has a host of, it, China has a host of challenges that it's dealing with right now and it's setting the tone of the engagement with the United States and through a very regional focus, but it's got a grander economic 
as Peter has really taught us this economic colonization view. So regionally, China has said, we'll, we'll engage, we'll be provocative, we'll send some messages, um, we'll flail around and make Taiwan nervous. Um, and the United States is paying great attention to that. So we, we look a few time zones away, we see what Russia is doing in Ukraine and to the very point of this call is that the globe isn't really paying too much attention to that, only those that are focused in on, the, on our relationships in NATO and that part of the world, vis-a-vis -vis what the attention that China is getting relative to its claims on Taiwan, not dissimilar from Russia's claims against Ukraine. And so I think Putin is acting incredibly wisely right now from his perspective, getting a lot of attention and I may get something beneficial out of this, not only internally, without having to pull the trigger. And I might get some economic uh, quids as well, um, only because I'll agree not to pull the trigger. And I couldn't agree more, Spider, that uh, the Russian-China uh, affiliation is, is really like the, the most egregious divorce in the history of mankind coming together purely and simply for an optic photo at the child's birthday. But there's, there's really very little, I would not just say a mile wide, it's a very porous mile wide and an inch deep. Uh, but, but the flip side of that coin that, that may or may not prove to be positive is it, it does appear that there are some increased frictions right now between Turkey and, and Russia that have cropped up, not so much because of this, although it is loosely connected with some of the vacation spots in Crimea versus some of the vacation spots in Turkey and Putin's attempt to, to, to try to encourage people towards Crimea vice Turkey. And, and it's always to our advantage, NATO's advantage, if Turkey becomes a stronger player in NATO, let me say a less hostile player to NATO than, than what we experienced over the last year. So, that plausibly even could be something that positive comes out of it is, is Turkey at least optically appearing, uh, moving one sidestep closer to NATO in this particular discussion that lends itself uh, to opportunities maybe down the road. Yeah, and one other thing I think that, you know, Spiders mentioned a little bit as you, I think as we look at what we're doing with sanctions, that's something that's going to take a lot of consideration. Uh, General Stewart and I have been spending some time on this. And the rise of cryptocurrency, for example, probably does a lot to mitigate what we can do via sanctions, right? When everything had to trade through currencies and the dollar and was through the SWIFT system, we had a lot of ability to impose sanctions and they had real teeth. And I'm becoming increasingly concerned that as the total market cap of cryptocurrency grows, the ability to trade it very frequently all over the globe grows, that our, you know, the power of sanctions may be decreasing. I think that's something we have to be thinking about maybe as we're figuring out how to respond and do our policies and do these sanctions have the same impact that they once did as the rise of cryptocurrency has given a lot of the, you know, evil people in the world a way around the traditional monetary system. So do you think, Peter, that... Um... Obviously, the U.S. dollar being the, the global reserve, the Chinese are looking for the yuan to, to assume that place. Do you think the Russians are thinking that cryptocurrency is going to supplant that? 
I think they're certainly willing to use it right now. When you look at getting around sanctions, right? It's if you used to sell oil or buy oil from a sanctioned country, it was probably in dollars, right? As that becomes and shifts around into you're buying and selling this in Bitcoin, how do we really make sure the sanctions that we believe we have in place are being enforced? Um, I think it's no coincidence, right, that part of our recent sanctions were against the uh, SolarWinds hack, not for, not nothing to do with this troop buildup, but you know, as much as as far as my understanding still is the largest single use of cryptocurrency is to pay ransomware, right? It's probably not a coincidence that that hack occurred and crypto went from 25,000 to 60,000. There's lots of other factors. And we see more and more as sanctions get imposed, crypto sells off, which would be the opposite. And the reason that could be happening is some of these dictators, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's Putin, have stores of cryptocurrency that they can then sell to offset the impact of sanctions. So. I think it's got to be part of the conversation and our ability to use the dollar. And, you know, China has become very ahead, right? They are much further along the digital one. And I think people have to figure out what does that mean? I don't have a good idea, but I, I think the global economy is changing and the global currency is at risk of changing. And our policy of sanctions may not be as effective, which again would be another reason for these countries to kind of test us. And, and of course, adding to that, there, there certainly is an economic advantage, plausibly, to, um, to Russia uh, continuing its, its desire to have greater influence with Ukraine, whether that's invasion or whether that's a, any other type of partnership. But there's certainly economic advantages um, for them in the Ukraine uh, that, that they have long sought we all know that they have uh, a healthy appetite for sea access, um, you know, and which of course it, you, you plausibly get that depending on how much of Ukraine you, you end up having the ability to, to work with. Um, and, and a lot of these are, are, have been there forever. I mean, they, they've, they've been there for the last you know, 40, 50 years in the discussion of what the Soviet Union's ultimate long-term goals are. Um, the, the, the key is, as y'all were saying, is there a difference between economic sanctions and sanctions? And can we leverage sanctions that are flow of things um, that have an impact that, that give Putin pause to blink, but at the same time, the ability to back out without without feeling that he has been backed into a corner um, and lost credibility that that would make him then feel I have to I have to punch somebody in the nose in order to to get my credibility back and that's a very that's a very dicey line to, to draw I was heartened by General Walters um, statement today I don't know all the intel he knows but feeling that for a quote-unquote variety of reasons um, you know, they, he, he saw this dissipating over the course of the next weeks, not accelerating over the course of the next weeks. Right. I, I think that makes sense. I think there is much more to be gained um, for the Russians to continue to bark as opposed to bite at this point, because, the, the, you know, everybody is now that much more attentive to what's going on and you take the air out of the sails when you play your hand. So keep keep your cards face down for now. Gentlemen, the last few minutes we have here, did wanna uh, answer a few questions from the audience. Uh, we had a question 
discussing how um, when Russia invaded Crimea, of course, there was the messaging that it was about protecting Russian-speaking um, Ukrainians in Crimea, but there was the added benefit of uh, access to the Black Sea. Is there another ulterior uh, benefit to potentially invading um, Eastern Ukraine? General Robson? Yeah, my, oh, there's, my absolutely, there's absolutely mineral rights and other, you know, uh, economic value in Ukraine. So there's a ton of that in Russia as well. It's not like Ukraine's the only place it has it. Um, but it's easily accessible. It's it's sort of a big mess uh, at this point. But I, I, I tend to think this is not, uh, the, that the objective of Russia is not economic. I tend to think that this is the objective here is they've always wanted buffer space They've always wanted separation between them and NATO. They've always wanted somebody else's land that they could uh, could bargain away and and, and could fight on. Um, and and I, at the end of the day, you go from being a Soviet Union to being Russia, and all that was lost in that process. Um, it, it, it's hard to say we're we're a stronger we're as strong and great or stronger and greater than we were as a Soviet Union without some level of this type of push uh, to reinforce what you're saying. Yeah. Cut you off. No, no, my, my apologies, Master. I, I jumped on your comms there. But I, I really see two things. One is um, by taking the Donbass, were they to do that, uh, Russia benefits by having a less isolated Crimea, right? Um, and then the second thing is there is an economic component. If you were to annex the Donbass, so that's about a third of the population of Ukraine now back with Russia. And whatever the national debt is that Kiev is dealing with, you've lost a third, if not more, of your population to help pay that off. So now you've got a crippling economic challenge for Kiev. So that then becomes to mix some metaphors here, that becomes death by a thousand cuts. Suddenly Ukraine becomes that much more vulnerable and starts to atrophy with some real economic challenges. Russia now can step in, having stepped in in Crimea, having stepped in in Donbass, they can say, we can rescue you guys. We're here for you. They become not only a power player politically, but economically as well. Well, that's a great domino effect analysis, particularly for you know, love, love to know inside Putin's head if he sees those dominoes, and I'm sure he does, and whether he believes he could pull off those dominoes, and I'm sure he does. Uh, and certainly at the end of the day, that's how he expands uh, his, his control and his influence and his reputation is by these type, particularly if he can do them semi-bloodless, um, that, that at least publicly bloodless, that works to his advantage and works to the Russian people's advantage um, but does not work to NATO's advantage. Obviously, doesn't work to the to democratic advantage, Ukraine's advantage, the former Soviet nation advantage. Um, and this will not be the last time this happens. I mean, this will continue to be, um, by my way of thinking, something that will be routine for Putin over the course of, you know, the next decade plus that he is in the position of authority. It's like any other after-action review, right, Aston? We've done a gazillion of them. What'd we do right? What'd we do wrong? You start piling up on those. What'd we do wrong? 
So we're going to address those, but guess what? We had some successes. Let's have success repeat success. Well, finally, before we end the call, any sort of indicators uh, our clients and partners should be looking for? There's not a kinetic military force posture that's going to shift that at all. It's going to be something else. And I would, I'm, I'm looking at Peter Shear and I'm thinking there may be some economic um, or, or some asymmetric and, and maybe some very strong diplomatic talk, as you've said. Yeah, I think for myself, I'm closely watching the treasury market and, you know, treasury yields have rallied a little bit and improved. And there's a lot of part, moving parts of that. But, you know, I'm certainly been bearish treasuries. I think a lot of people have because we've been very focused on the growth story, domestic growth, the stimulus. And that would cause a lot of reasons for treasury yields to rise. I think if we see this escalate in Russia and Ukraine, we could see treasury yields drop very quickly. So I think we've got to be thinking about that in terms of our portfolio, because it would be a true risk off event. And not just because of what happens with Russia, but the knock on effect to Europe, and also the real rising risk that all of a sudden, Iran and China might take advantage of it if we don't show a strong response to a Russian accident. We don't think that's likely to happen. But that's kind of what I'd watch for. And kind of, I think it's going to reflect itself most quickly in the treasury market especially given current positioning and views on the treasury market. And I would add to that, it certainly sets a tone for the Biden administration. So I think President Biden will be very, very keen to try to get this one right. Uh, to Because if he doesn't get this one right, then it'll, it'll certainly cause a domino effect for the administration going forward with other like uh, scenarios that could pop up around the world. And, and so I think I think he's going to put a lot of effort and energy into this. And I think that's positive. I think that's good for us, good for our allies, good for our relationship with NATO. It, it sort of provides that exercise, so to speak, uh, that brings everybody to the table, causes everybody to show their hands, causes everybody to put their fingers in the pot and, uh, and work together to come up with a, a unified solution that we can all support. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the opportunity for multilateralism to really work. I mean, early in the Biden administration, literally just about a month and a half ago, was Myanmar and the military coup in Myanmar. And there was precious little multilateralism in terms of how to respond to that. It was just the president saying, this is unacceptable, yet he was in a formation of one when he said it. This is an opportunity in Ukraine for partners that have got some real long historical deep ties to say, yeah, this is unacceptable. Bridge. Yeah, great points. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today, especially on short notice. Uh, to our attendees, thank you for giving us part of your days to share some of our insights. As always, if you have any feedback, questions, please reach out to us at info at academysecurities.com. We welcome any sort of questions inbound, we can't wait to provide uh, analysis and insights to your questions and to better serve you all in this capacity. Thank you again for joining us today and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Be well and be safe. As Rachel mentioned, please feel free to reach out. If you would like to engage with our geopolitical and macro strategy team directly, you can email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with the social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.